Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Derek Gilbert with Keller Williams Realty in Inglewood, Colorado. Year to date, he sold 68 homes worth $21 million. His average sales price was $308,000, of which 51% were buyers and 49% were sellers. He has a four-member team, one executive assistant, one inside sales agent, one marketing partner, and one team leader. Derek Gilbert is the team leader of the Gilbert Group. He's been an agent for 12 years. In his best year, 2010, he sold 111 homes worth $21 million. In this call, Derek talks about moving to Colorado and running his Arizona real estate team remotely, closing his remote office and starting from scratch in a new market where he did not know anyone, generating excitement and multiple offers for sellers in a hot market, how to help buyers win multiple offer situations even when they're not the highest price, a marketing plan for past clients, referral scripts and role play to your sphere of influence, putting on events for your past clients, including his fall festival, targeted Facebook failure ads that keep you in front of your past clients for pennies per day, his geographic farming program, the technology and software that make his business work, team dynamics, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Derek. Thanks, Mike. Hey, Derek. It's great to have you here. Derek, before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Before I got into real estate, my, my degree is actually in computer science. So I was in the software field for a while. I started at a, a software company in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is where I grew up and worked there for about four years. And then a friend of mine that I actually graduated college with was a recruiter for Intel and uh, so he recruited me out to Phoenix to come work for Intel as a software engineer, and I spent about another four years there. Wow. How'd you make it to Denver? My wife said I'm moving to Denver, and you can come if you want. <laughs> uh, you know, we both grew up in Wisconsin, and, you know, we moved to to Phoenix right around 1999, and you know, she just did not care for Arizona at all. And so it was really tough for her, you know, for the first few years that we were down there. And so we knew at some point we wanted to probably get out of there. It was 120 degrees one August, and she just lost it and was like, I am moving. You can come if you want. Um, And, you know, Denver is somewhere that we had already, you know, kind of planned on going to. So, but that was a little further down the road, you know, because I actually started my real estate career in Phoenix before I moved to Denver. How did you get into real estate? How did you switch over and transition from software and computers over to real estate? What what caused that to happen? A couple of things. I was getting a little antsy in the corporate world. I just wasn't, 
going where I wanted to and I didn't feel like I was progressing as fast as I wanted to. And so my wife's family, her aunt and uncle were actually visiting us in Phoenix at the time. And we went out to dinner one evening and we're just kind of talking. And I just mentioned I was interested in real estate. And, you know, the next night he showed up with a, a real estate investment book and I read it and was instantly addicted to it. And in fact, my fortune cookie that I got at dinner that night said a, a new business venture will soon develop for you. And I, and I always kept that fortune and so, yeah, so then I, I just started going to all these real estate investment seminars and reading, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad and all these real estate investment books. And so I went out and bought a fourplex that quickly turned into a fix and flip situation. Um, and, you know, once I got through that one, I just started buying more multifamily and was doing fix and flips. And, you know, before long, I was making a lot more money than I was making at Intel on the side doing, you know, flipping properties. And so I decided to get my real estate license actually initially just to save on commissions and then just kind of grew it from there. Did you continue as an investor or did you switch over and and have the majority of your income stream now from brokerage? The first year uh, that I got into the real estate, I was still doing investment while I was also building my real estate career. So, you know, that was in the early 2000s when, you know, the the financing world was a lot different, right? You could do 100% financing and dated income loans and 80-20s and all that fun stuff. And so I was doing that, like I said, on the side kind of at Intel. And then when I left, I, I was still picking up a couple of fourplex projects that we were working on. And I focused on investors first. I actually joined Keller Williams in November of 2004, and I didn't leave my job, I think, until January of 2005. And right away, I just went to Keller Williams Family Reunion. And at that time, a lot of Californians were investing in Arizona because the market was booming so much. So I went to the reunion, and I just spent the entire week looking for California name tag badges on agents and just trying to network and find anybody that had investors that were looking in Phoenix. And Sure enough, I found an agent and she referred somebody to me and they ended up, I think, buying seven or eight properties from me that year. And, you know, they were referring me to their friends. And so Family Reunion at Keller Williams kind of launched my real estate career, just networking with other agents. How long were you working in Arizona as an agent? I got my license in 2004. So I was there for five years, five and a half years. I came to Denver in 2009. You know, I got in right as it was taking off, you know, kind of pre-boom. And then I was there right right as it tanked. And I was actually doing a lot of REO and short sale when I came to Denver. And I, I actually ran an REO and short sale team in Phoenix for about a year, just over a year as I kind of got my feet on the ground when I moved to Denver. You switched over from Phoenix where you were starting to meet people to Denver. Did you know anybody in Denver? A handful of people. One of the reasons that my wife and I kind of settled on Denver as being a, a place that we'd want to move to was a few of my college roommates lived here. And I'm a, I'm a huge snowboarder. It's one of my big passions in my life is snowboarding. And so I would always be here in the winter visiting former college roommates that lived out here and we would always do snowboard trips. And so I think I had four or five people from college that lived here in Denver. And so, you know, we had a little bit of a sphere and some people that helped make that transition easier because we, you know, we knew a couple of people. 
When you first went to Denver and you needed to get a quick start, it sounds like you stayed within the Keller Williams Network and you started working in REO department. Is that correct? I started doing REO, I think, around 2007 was when we started doing REO down in Phoenix and we were doing a lot of short sales as well. And so when I moved to Denver in 2009, I hung my license with Keller Williams DTC, but I actually didn't start doing any business here for the first year because I was still running everything down in Phoenix. I did a couple of deals. I didn't, I wasn't really focused a whole lot on getting it up and running extremely fast in Colorado because I still had a pretty good business going in Phoenix. But that second year, I really, um, it's kind of interesting actually, because my, I, I tell this story quite a bit. My wife and I were at church and I think it was right at the end of 2009. So we had just moved here to Denver and we were kind of trying to find a, a church where we felt at home with, and there was just a, a sermon that they were talking about, you know, what's in your life and what are you surrounding yourself with and are you happy and all of these things. And it just spoke to me a lot because, you know, we were selling more property than we ever had before. I think that year we closed like 110 REOs and short sales. You know, we were making great money, but I, I was miserable. I, I hated it. I didn't like doing any of it. It was really making me not want to be in real estate anymore. And so I just turned to my wife and I said, I I don't want to do this anymore. So I canceled all my REO accounts and uh, I said I was never going to touch a short sale again in my life. And so that very next year, we, we just, you know, I just head down focused on building my business here in Denver and, uh, and kind of shutting everything down in Phoenix. It sounds like you ran your business down in Arizona remotely from Denver for one year. I did. How did you do that? A lot of Skype. (laughs) So I went down there a couple of times, and I actually had some transition while I was there too because after my wife and I moved here, I can't remember how long it was, maybe maybe a month or two after we moved here, my um, REO manager who was basically my executive assistant down there that I had running a lot of my REO business. Her husband got transferred to Florida in the military, so she had to go. So I actually put her in charge of finding her replacement, and she found me a a really great gal that was actually doing REOs on a different team, and she moved over to us, and we interviewed her over Skype. So I never even met her, I think, for about six months. Everything we did was over the phone, over Skype, via the computer. And then I had some buyer's agents that were working with me before I left. And so, you know, we would kind of do the same thing. We would have like weekly Skype meetings and, you know, just stayed in touch that way. And you said a weekly meeting on Skype. Were you talking with your team daily or weekly? With my team, it was uh, weekly, sometimes bi-weekly. But with my assistant, it was, it was daily. There was days we, we would spend three or four hours just connected to each other on Skype. I just viewed it as we were in the same office. It just happened to be we weren't face-to-face. We were just, you know, we had a Skype session going. Would you do it where you could see each other's faces and talk to each other that way, or were you just using the audio? It just depended on the day, but I'd say the majority of the time we were, we were face-to-face. So the assistant you were talking about was running the team, and you were talking to that assistant? Pretty much, yeah. How many people were on the team in Arizona at that time? I think I had five, because at one point I had two assistants, 
I had my lead assistant and a, a backup, and then I had three different buyer's agents. 2010, you closed about 110, 111 transactions. What was your volume? Do you remember some around 20, 21 million? Yeah, it was somewhere right around, I think it was around 21 million. Our GCI that year, I believe, was uh, about 560,000. And that was an eye opener for me, too, because it should have been twice that. <laughs> um, but, you know, in, in REO world, you know, we were paying out pretty heavy referral fees to some of these asset management companies. One of our, our biggest accounts, we were paying 48%. Um, to our asset management company. So it was higher volume, lower margin, REO, on some of these accounts. It's really interesting. You decided at one point to stop doing that. That wasn't enjoyable anymore. You were going to go a different direction. I'm about to finish up with Arizona, but did you shut down the team? Did you sell the team? Did you let the team run on its own? How did you end the relationship with Arizona? I wish I would have known then what I know now because, you know, this was before the whole Keller Williams expansion model discussions, and I I didn't realize what I had when I left because our database and sphere of influence and all of that had basically gone dead, right, because the market in Phoenix had dropped, you know, 48%, 50%, and so, you know, we weren't getting past client calls unless they were doing short sales. So I didn't see the value in my database at the time. So when I shut that business down, you know, the buyer's agents, you know, we let them kind of go on their own route. And uh, my assistant, I actually tried to get her to move here. <laughs> I bribed her. I told her I would pay for her to move here because I, I, she was just so great. And I really knew I wanted to build my business in Denver, but she just couldn't do it with her family. So she actually, I believe, went on to work for another real estate company for a little bit and then moved on to a different career. And then my database, I had some good friends down in Phoenix. They're still good friends of mine, um, Fred and Kevin Kaufman with Group 4610. And uh, they were doing a lot of short sales. In fact, I mean, they were the short sale guys in Phoenix at the time. So I, I you know, gave them my database and, you know, we worked out an agreement that if there was any deals that came out of that for the next year or two, or I, I don't remember exactly what the agreement was that, you know, we'd have some referrals going back and forth. And, uh, and they were actually the ones that introduced me into the Dave Ramsey program, which was one of the things that kind of helped me get launched here in Denver. We're going to go into that in just a minute. Let's go back to the, the, the very beginning. Have you had your license for 12 years total? I've been in real estate for 12 years, my license for 10 years. Now that you're in Inglewood, how many homes did you sell last year? Last year, I closed 64. Do you remember the sales volume on that? Yeah, last year, that was about 16 million. And do you recall your GCI? Um, Last year, I think our GCI was 468, if I'm correct. And you mentioned your best year as far as volume. That was back in 2010, sold 111 homes or 21 million. But you're on track this year to go beyond what you did last year. How many homes have you sold year to date? We're sitting here in the middle of October. How many homes have you sold year to date? So year to date, I'm at 68. I think we've closed uh, closed 61. Um, and I've got another, uh, I think, eight, uh, nine or 10 pending currently. About 21 million in closed volume. Just over 600 in GCI. 
We're going to get into your team a little later as far as more details, but just a, a quick view. If I understand correctly, you are doing all the sales and then you have a few assistants helping you with the administrative side. Is that correct? That's correct. And I, and I do utilize different licensed agents in my office at time to assist with showings and we pay them hourly showing fees. And that's been while we've um, been searching for different buyer's agents because uh, I, have, I have had, you know, buyer's agents come and go on the team. And so, you know, when we're in that transition period where we're trying to find the right match, you know, we've utilized other licensed agents to assist with showing properties. Describe your arrangement that you've made with the other agents in your office to act as a showing agent for you and the, the fee that you provide them. How does that work? We put together just a simple one-page document that's not an employment agreement, but what it is is it it states that, you know, they understand that they're representing us as an unofficial member of the team. So, you know, we've got different standards that they have to meet, which is, you know, obviously dress the part and hold up to the standards and values that we have as a team have. And uh, we pay an hourly fee for newer agents, we're typically paying about $20 an hour, which works great for us because obviously it gets our clients out seeing properties and it helps them as well because, you know, some of these agents are newer and so it's giving them experience in getting out, showing homes and, um, you know, getting to know inventories and things like that. So it's been a, a pretty win-win situation. I think overall, everybody on both sides has been pretty happy with that so far. I know in the long term, that's not going to be that that can't be a sustainable model. But uh, you know, while we're while we're on the hunt for a permanent buyer's agent, it it's definitely helping fill the gap. Let's do this. Let's uh, make sure everybody knows where you're at. Where is Inglewood, Colorado? It's about 15 minutes south of downtown Denver. So it's you know it's it's not far. It's right there. It's uh, actually called the Denver Tech Center, Inglewood, Colorado. Uh, a lot of people would know it as Denver Tech Center. Do you work just in Inglewood or do you work all throughout Metro Denver? Yeah, I work the entire Denver Metro south of I-70 for the most part. So the I-70 is the highway that basically wraps Denver. And uh, on the northern side of Denver, uh, we, we cut off there because otherwise it's just too far north. And, you know, we, we just feel we can't really provide a good enough service to go that far north, at least on the buy side. On the list side, you know, I'll expand up that way a little bit, but not too far. Do you know what the population is there in your market? You know, I don't. (laughs) I think we're somewhere around three and a half million, I believe. Could you please describe your current real estate market? Up until about two months ago, it was going through the roof. Our median home price was tracking right around 360 and that's up substantially over the year before. Our days on market was showing on MLS average days on market was about two weeks, but in my opinion, that was skewed quite a bit. If you look at the median, it was about seven days. And the reason I feel that number is a little bit skewed is because our market was so crazy. A lot of agents, you know, including myself, were listing properties, and then we would take offers four or five days before we started accepting them just to make sure we could get everybody in and make sure we could get our sellers the best and highest offer. Because literally, if we took the first offers, they, I mean, we could sell a house in hours. So that's, that's what our market was. About two months ago, starting in August, we, we are seeing our market shift pretty substantially. So 
we're starting to see price reductions for the first time in two years. Our average days on market has gone from one week to two weeks. You know, we're, we're seeing that shift that, you know, I think kind of signals maybe the end of, you know, this, this great run that we've been on. I assume from what you're saying that for the last year or two, you've been dealing with a lot of multiple offers where you have a listing and one, two, three, four, five or more buyers come in and want to make an offer on the property. Is that true? Yeah, except maybe it was more like an 11 or 12. <laughs> <laughs> How do you deal with that? What kind of system did you put in place to deal with a listing where you would receive 10 offers and have to work with 10 different buyers? What I was doing is we would put our properties on the MLS. Typically, we would start it on a Thursday, and we wouldn't start showings until Saturday. And typically, we would do an open house that Saturday to launch the property on the market. So we spent two days advertising the open house, letting it go on MLS so buyers were aware of it. You know, we would reverse prospect and send emails out to all the agents that had, you know, searches in MLS that matched the buyers. We were doing a lot of front loading to make that weekend as productive as possible so that we could generate those numerous offers. Then when we would get the offers in, I would basically go back and do best and highest with our top three offers and just go back and forth until we you know, made sure that we had the, the offer that we felt was the strongest. In our market, it wasn't always price because with that many multiple offers, you would see a high fallout rate. You know, we, were, we were getting to a point where we were seeing our contracts falling out at 25, 30% where we would end up having to go back to the previous offers. So we started actually having buyers remove certain contingencies on offers we were receiving on our house, such as their financing contingencies, you know, some were waiving inspections, things of that nature. We just wanted to make sure that we were getting in an offer that was going to stick. And, you know, we weren't going to have to cancel it in three days because they got buyer's remorse because they got caught up in a bidding war. So you were having them remove their contingencies to make their offers stronger. That makes some of the buyers fall out right there. Uh, yep. You were also obviously, I'm assuming, looking for cash, but they're not always there. So you were dealing with financing by having them remove that contingency. If they remove the contingency, did you have buyers that had to bring up the difference in cash if the appraisal didn't come in high enough? Oh, yeah. We had a lot, we had a lot of deals like that this year. On the buy and the sell, I mean, I had buyers that we, we were doing the same thing with where to get offers, we would, you know, basically waive appraisal contingencies and they would bring in cash difference or, you know, we'd maybe be willing to go 5000 or $10,000 over appraisal depending on what somebody's budget might be. You know, we'd also, on both sides of the deals, there were times where we would make portions of the earnest deposit non-refundable, you know, just to show serious intent that the buyer was not going to walk away from the property. And if they were, then, you know, they were going to leave a piece of that earnest deposit on the table. Did you either use or see agents use some type of escalation clause that basically said, my offer is 100000 but if anybody else comes in higher, I'll beat their offer by $500? We did initially. Or actually, we did throughout that whole time frame, but I'd say over the past year, the escalation clauses started going away a little bit more just simply because everybody was escalating. So, you know, you'd, you'd 
you'd have a home and you'd get five or six properties and every one of them would have an escalation clause that just got very convoluted. So we started in our broker remarks asking that agents not put escalation clauses in their offer and just give us their best and highest offer right up front because it gets very confusing when you start getting multiple offers in and this one's escalating to this price, which now kicks in the escalation for another one. It becomes this waterfall effect where you're trying to deal with all of that and you go back and you do a best and highest off escalation clauses. It just just became a mess. So we just started doing away with escalation clauses and just asking for, you know, hard numbers and just give us your best offer right out of the bat. When you're working with a buyer and you're in this fast moving market, how do you convince the buyer to make a strong offer, sometimes more than the asking price? I think the market convinced them more than anything. The last thing that I I would want to do is advise a buyer to go above or beyond what they're comfortable with. So we always do a buyer consultation. And part of our consultation with our buyers this year was just really prepping them for what they were going to face in the market. So our buyers knew before they ever started even looking at homes what they were going to be facing. And one of the advantages that we felt our team offered was we had strategies in place to try to help them come out on top if we did get into these multiple offer situations, which didn't always include having the highest price. Can I share that strategy with you, I guess? Sure, please. So a lot of buyers were writing letters to sellers to submit with their offers, which was working somewhat, but we kind of took that to another level. And I started doing YouTube videos with my clients, either at the properties or they would send me a YouTube video from their iPhone and just upload it and, and send me the link. And so we would actually start sending videos to the clients with our offers. And that was getting our offers accepted in a market where it was difficult and it was kind of a secret strategy. You know, we were selling a lot of properties this year and and we weren't getting that on our end, but it was, it was a hugely successful way to get properties this year. What would the buyer say in that video to convince the seller to sell the property to them instead of someone else? And I've got to assume sometimes for a lower price. I think it was just the emotion that came across because a lot of the time we would do it at the house. So they were still at the home. They were excited about the property. I would do it inside the house with them, maybe like in the kitchen or the living room. And I would always advise the buyer to pick something out in the house and talk about it. You know, you can, you can usually see where a seller has pride in their property and we would just make a comment to that or talk to some specific feature of the property we would try to find something where it might appeal to that seller and kind of tug at their heartstrings along with just the excitement. I mean, the buyers are excited and that stuff comes across in the video. And so, uh, yeah, I think just having that there really, really helped us a lot. And I can think of a couple of videos where they were, they, I mean, they almost got me teary eyed. So, and I'm not the most emotional guy in the world, but some of these people are just, you know, they pour their heart out in these videos and, you know, sellers appreciate that. They, you know, they want to sell a home for the most part to somebody that they know is going to love it. That's a really good point. Even though sellers are often more logical, they can be emotional and it doesn't hurt to to give that a shot. 
it makes me flash back to BG's 15 years ago. We had a super fast market. And if you'll just give me an indulgence for a second, I had the same situation happen. I had a young couple. They want to buy a property. There were seven multiple offers. They were the lowest offer and couldn't go any higher because of financing constraints. But it was a ranch-style home, and they were bringing in their grandmother to live with them. And it was the only home that met their needs because of that in the area they want to be in. They put that information in a letter, sent it over to the seller. Seller accepted their offer, even though it was the lowest of seven. And when we went to inspection and found some challenges with the furnace, it was immediately replaced, even though that wasn't common in the market. So these emotional letters, or in this case, an emotional video, that is super powerful, and that's a wonderful idea. Way to go, Derek. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that 100%. So it, it's not always about the money. In fact, I think most of the time it's probably not. Another challenge you're going to have in the fast-moving market is appraisals not coming in. How do you deal with those? Well, that was another thing where I, I would prep both my buyers and sellers for that scenario. So on the sell side, when we would list a property, I would let them know that we would probably get multiple offers on their home if it was in a certain area and a certain price. And so that was another thing. I think if you just have these discussions beforehand, it doesn't become an issue down the road because when we would get these offers in and they were fifteen, twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars over my asking price, I would always tell my sellers that just because we got that offer price doesn't mean it's going to appraise for that. So I would just say, you know, I, I would just let them know that there's a likelihood that we may need to pull this price back a little bit. And if we accept this offer, are you comfortable doing that? And most of the time they would say yes because it was more than what they were expecting to get for the property anyways. The other thing that we would talk to them about was, you know, when buyers offer you $20,000 over a home, they're going to want a lot of those repair items done if that wasn't pre-negotiated in the offer because what we were finding is when somebody overbids a property that much, they want it all back, (laughs) you know. um, So we would talk about, you know, some buyers might send over some pretty lengthy inspection lists or they might want some of those bigger ticket items taken care of if they're giving you a huge premium on the property. So once again, it was just giving people the right advice and I, I think addressing it up front versus having a problem down the road. Nobody likes surprises and if you remove the surprise and you have the discussion, I think those situations tend to go away a little bit. Let's talk about how you do your lead generation. I know that a good percentage of your business, I I think about a a little over a quarter, about 28% of your business has come from past clients and sphere of influence, repeating referrals. Let's talk about that. First of all, how big is your database of past clients and sphere of influence? Right now, past clients and our A sphere of influence, it's just over 300. How many of those 300 are past clients? There's about 240 in there, I believe, that are past clients. How do you qualify a A sphere of influence, these 60 people? How do you define them? What do they look like? Basically, they're people that I know will refer me business. If somebody would ask them who they would recommend to buy or sell a home, I am 99% sure that they would give my name out. So they're people that know me, like me, maybe close friends, close neighbors in the neighborhood, friends of past clients that we've become friends with, vendors that refer me deals, 
people where we have really strong relationships with that maybe we haven't necessarily done business with. Do you have a sphere of influence that goes beyond the 60? You said these are your A. Do you have a B or C or D category? You know, we haven't really classified that because I wouldn't market to them any differently. So if they're not a an A sphere of influence or a past client, they just kind of go into our database in, as a general, you know, and we'll tag them or maybe um, specify a lead source or something like that. But it, you're either an A sphere person or you're a past client, and they're going to get catered to a lot more than anybody else in our database. And if I understood correctly, basically the way they get into A is that they've either referred business to you or you believe that they will. Pretty much, yep. How are you tracking your database of past clients and sphere of influence? Are you using some software? Yeah, we use Follow-Up Boss. Is that all online or is that uh, some software on your computer? It is web-based. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a cloud-based system and, you know, they've got an app for your iPhone and things like that. Actually, when I, when I moved to Denver, I moved everything over to the cloud. I didn't want any more desktop stuff because I wanted everything to be mobile. How did you find Follow-Up Boss? A lot of trial and error. <laughs> uh, I think I've, I think I've tried every CRM under the sun. You stick with the best or the worst, and uh, I wouldn't call Follow Up Boss the best or the worst. I, I think it's a good tool. It's great. It's got the systems that we need, and it's easy. You know, it wasn't too convoluted. It's a pretty intuitive interface. And what I loved about it is. We tried some of these bigger platforms like Commissions Inc. You know, um, we weren't ever successful in getting Boomtown, but we had uh, uh, what was the other one? Conversion for a while, and they were really expensive. They were, you know, a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars a month just for the platform, and that was before they did any kind of lead generation for you. So, you know, I just kind of looked at that one day, and I'm like, man, I'm paying twelve to fifteen thousand dollars a year for this platform that's not doing anything for me. So follow-up boss, I think I paid $1,500 for the year. And what's great about it is it plugs into anything that I want to use. So it uses what's called the Zapier interface. So I use SomBomb for video emails and I use, you know, the Mojo dialer for dialing and Happy Grasshopper for email campaigns. And so what's great about follow-up boss is unlike these platforms that were $1,500 a month and were proprietary and they didn't talk to anything, follow-up boss talks to everything. So now I can plug in all the pieces that it might not have, and it's still cheaper than me paying for these other platforms. So it's, it's more versatile for me. I can pick and choose what software pieces I want to use. And it just, to me, has kind of helped streamline our business and bring back a little bit more of the profit and allow us to kind of have better expense management on the different software tools that we're using. For your database, the 300 or so, these past clients and A-Sphere, how are you staying in front of them? What are you doing to contact them and stay in front of them, say, over the course of a year? What does that look like? Do you have a marketing plan put in place? And if so, what are the components of it? We do quite a bit. And we've really started focusing a lot more on that in the past two years you know, because like I said, I just moved to Denver in 2009. So that first year or two, you're just building your business trying to get past clients, right? So sure. now that we're in year five, you know, we've built that up to a pretty good number. And so 
now we're starting to get some of those clients that we were working with a couple of years ago that are, you know, wanting to sell or buy again and, and they're starting to refer. I actually do a number of different client events throughout the year. This year we did a past client event at Dave and Buster's. We invited all of our past clients. I partnered with one of our lenders and title companies to help with the expenses on that. And, you know, we, um, we had a, a catered dinner and some drinks and, um, you know, we had game cards for everybody to bring the kids and they could go win prizes. Every year for the past five years in my farm, I actually do a, a fall festival that's been growing substantially and we could probably talk about that a little bit later. But last year we started inviting our past clients to it, making that part of my farm, but also an event for our past clients. Our office, Keller Williams DTC, has a huge Halloween event that they do every year and it, it pulls through three to 5,000 people a year. It's all the agents past clients and we decorate the whole office and the agents hand out candy. So we invite them to that. Last year I rented out a movie theater. So we've been doing a lot of events basically where we are, we're trying to stay in front of our clients and we're trying to do events where they're going to want to show up and have fun and, you know, they can bring their kids if they have kids We've done some happy hours for those that don't. And we try to do them geographically because, you know, we've got clients in different parts of the city. So we we try to be smart about how we're doing them. You know, we know some people don't have kids, so they're not going to go to this event. And, you know, some people live in this area, so they're not going to want to travel that far to go to an event. So we try to do a couple of things where it makes sense that we can tap into the different pieces of our database. And then, you know, we obviously we're calling them for all of these events and staying in touch with them that way. I've got a monthly mailer that goes out to all of them. We do some occasional bomb bomb videos, which, you know, we're working on enhancing that moving into next year. We're going to do a lot more video with our clients and stuff too. Do I understand that you have four events each year or were those events spread out over the years? Been averaging three to four a year. So you probably spread those out through the year, and those give you a reason to make contact with your past clients, to invite them to the event, have them at the event, and then after the event, have the post-event say, hey, here's some pictures from the event, et cetera. So it gives you a reason to contact them, yes? Exactly. You said you also are doing these calls, mailers, and bomb bomb videos. Do you have a schedule set up for your calls? You know, I wish I could say yes to that, but <laughs> if I'm just being honest, I, I don't. I guess the best way I can answer that is I would say we call around our events, so the before and the after. And, you know, I, I usually take bold once a year, so there's always some calls to be made there too. But I don't have a, I, I don't have a campaign set up where I say, okay, I'm calling them once a quarter and, you know, here's the date that we're calling them. Actually, this week I've been calling through all my past clients again because we started bold. And so I'm actually just using the script of there's a competition for who can get the most referrals. And it's been a really receptive script and uh, we're having some good success with that as well. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. So walk us through that script a little bit. You said you're just starting to use it. You're getting good feedback. There's something about a contest. 
could you give us more about that script to, you know, maybe role play for us and tell us how it sounds? Yeah, absolutely. Um, cause I just said it about 20 times this morning. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, the, the script is simple. It, it's just, you know, Hey Mike, this is Derek Gilbert with, uh, Keller Williams Realty. Do you, do you have a, a quick minute that I could chat with you? Sure, Derek. Great. Well, hey, the reason for my call, Mike, is I actually just started this really great real estate class this week. Actually, I started it on Tuesday. And the very first thing that we have is this competition and challenge where I need to reach out to every single one of my past clients. And the competition is to see who can get the most amount of referrals. So I was calling to see who you might know that's thinking about either buying a home, selling a home, or investing in real estate that I could reach out to today. Wow, I, I can't think of anybody off the top of my head. No problem. Nobody from work or any friends that you hang out with. You know, uh, I think, what's his name? Uh, Nick, Nick down in the accounting department. I think that he was actually saying something about moving to a bigger home. He just, uh, I think he just got a promotion. Really? Well, uh, yeah, that would be great. Well, if you don't mind, um, could I ask you to maybe chat with Nick and see if it might be okay if I give him a call and uh, just introduce myself and see if that's something that we could help him with? You know, I'd be happy to do that. You did a great job for us. And, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll talk to Nick and I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. If it's okay with him, if you don't mind, uh, I will follow up with you tomorrow and I will get Nick's phone number and I'll reach out and give him a call. Hey, that sounds great. I'll, I'll talk to him and, and uh, get his phone number, and uh, I'll make sure it looks good for you. Great. Anybody else that you can think of, Mike? Uh, I'll, I'll keep my eyes open, but I can't think of anybody else. It just, just, just dawned on me that Nick's thinking about moving. Great. Well, Mike, I really appreciate you taking the time to think about that, and, uh, and I can't tell you how much uh, I, I'm grateful for you thinking about Nick, and I look forward to speaking with him here this week. Sure, Derek. Well, I hope the competition goes well for you. Thanks. Me too. I uh, appreciate you taking my call. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Bye. Hey, that was a great job, Derek. Good job. Good job. So I, I like how you, you have a, a happy, excited lilt in your voice you know you're kind of you're making this fun it's not some drudgery (laughs) i think that really comes through in the call i have a quick question for you you said you started out in computers have you ever taken the disc test i have and can you tell us how you score i'm like a 99d and uh, i think my eye is up in the 80s but you know what's odd about it is um on a disc, I'm a DI, and my S and C don't really show up. I'm actually um, below the midline of 50 on a disc. But on my AVA, um, I always forget my AVA score, but I'm a high vector 1, vector 4, so, you know, would be closer to a DC, which if I think about it, it, it is more my personality style. Yeah, I was wondering if you had a lot of C in you and how you were able to move into the D and the I like you just did in that conversation. I am kind of a sociable person, so the the I definitely shows up. You know, I tend to talk a lot, but more than my I, I'm definitely analytical. <laughs> uh, you know, I like my numbers and crunching and, you know, I like to overthink everything. I was just curious about how that would work for somebody with a background in computers 
and it sounds like you already had some of these personalities, skills that work well in real estate. So I appreciate you opening up on that. You said that the callers are, have been a little bit of a challenge. You just started up with the bold script. You just went through it. You're obviously doing it well. Sounds like you're getting a little bit of some feedback and some results. What's the monthly mailer all about? So we do a couple. For my past clients, there's a, a print company here in town that actually I think has a great campaign that goes out that it's a calendar of, of, of events usually or something going on every month where people want to keep that card. So September, I think, was all of the fall festivals. And, you know, then the Broncos schedule went out. And before that, it was great places to go camping or hiking. And so that, you know, every one of them is, is something useful, you know, different farmers markets. There was one that went out that had uh, different free days. It's got all the free days and all the things around town. So, you know, where different museums would have, you know, free entry days and things like that. So there's things that aren't just, uh, you know, blah, 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 card. Um, it's actually something of value. In fact, I had dinner with one of my clients last week, and they were telling me, they're like, our entire fridge is covered with your face. <laughs> they're like, we keep all of your cards. So, uh, so yeah, so people keep them and hold on to them, and those are pretty useful. And then I've got, you know, a different set of, of cards that actually go out to my farm. Sounds like you just sent one Meller a month out to your past clients in Spear, and that that is a postcard? Correct. Yep. Once a month. And then every time we have an event, we actually print out an actual invitation. So there's probably three or four more letters that go out to them. And then I use Happy Grasshopper, you know, and we actually paid them to custom write some email campaigns. And they've got their Keep in Touch program, which, you know, just has some more interactive type emails. Real quick before I forget, the monthly mailer, you said it's a, a local company. They're doing great. What's the name of that company? It is Unique Litho. Unique Litho. Do they do the mail out for you as well? Do they print up the cards and do the mail? They do. Yep. Did you know approximately how much that's costing you for, say, the batch of 300? They run a 60 or 70 cents a piece. I think it was 63 cents a piece is what they were costing us. With the postage? Yep. You also mentioned on the events, you're going to send out an invitation letter. How far out before the event do you send that? usually about a month. You are also sending out invitations by email through Happy Grasshopper for the event. How many emails do you send out before the event? Typically, we send out about, I'd say, two. One, we always send, when we send the letter, we always send out an email. And then the other one we'll usually send as a reminder about a week before the actual event. And then depending on the event, like for our movie event, you know, we might use Evite. If it's an event that we need to know and we need RSVPs, then we'll send out an Evite. We did the same thing when we did our Dave and Buster's event. Sure, because you needed account for the vendor. Exactly. You also mentioned with Happy Grasshopper, you're sending out a, a keep in touch campaign, an email campaign. How often is that going out? I believe that goes out every three weeks. So basically to your sphere and past clients, you're going once a month, so 12 times a year with your mailer, your postcard. You're also now going out 15 times a year with the email. And on top of that, then you have three to four events where you're sending out a letter and two emails and maybe they show up and maybe an email afterwards. Correct. So that's five, another 15. So we're talking 
just like around 42 to 45 contacts a year. Yeah, I never thought about it being that high before. <laughs> yeah, I guess we, yeah, we are, yeah, we, we do touch them a lot. I think one of the reasons that you might have lost track with how many is because of the events. And I assume the events also make it really easy to contact them and talk with them. Yeah, it's, it's rare that I'm contacting my clients and asking for the business. Maybe I shouldn't, you know, make more, uh, of a concerted effort to do that. But yeah, most of the time it's an invitation uh, of some sort. And then also I, I forgot to bring this up too, but we actually use targeted ads on Facebook to stay in front of our past clients as well. So, and that's actually where I'll ask for the referral. Facebook targeted ads for people that don't know what that is, you know, kind of walk us through it. How did you set that up? What is in the ad how are you getting in front of these people that you want to get in front of? So Facebook allows you to upload email lists and create a, a group in your Facebook marketing section, I guess would be the best way to explain it. There's actually a software tool called Drift Rock, and there's a couple other ones out there too that will keep certain databases in sync with Facebook. So obviously we've got a past client list in our follow-up boss and we were using drift rock to keep that list in sync with facebook and then we would create an ad in facebook that i would upload a picture of myself or you know something and then i would just put on there like we love your referrals if we did a great job for you you know let somebody else know and you know we'd run different ads that would just target our past clients and so and it's super cheap. I mean, it's extremely cheap. It probably doesn't cost me more than $5 a month to be in front of probably 50% of our past clients. Every time they get on Facebook, it's showing up somewhere. In fact, I've had some of my past clients ask me if I'm stalking them. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a great way to to just be in front of them. And I'm not calling them and I'm not mailing them. And I'm just there when they show up online. And it's really cheap to do. What kind of call to action do you have on that? Are you asking them to like your page? Are you asking them to go to, say, your website? Uh, are you offering to do a free market analysis, a free CMA? Are you offering them a free list of homes? Or is it just you're putting your face in front of them and saying, hey, we love referrals? That's that's all I'm doing. Because I don't want them to click on the ad because that costs me money. <laughs> so I'll actually set my ad up as a pay-per-click knowing that they're not going to click on it. So basically the impression cost is really cheap. So, you know, I'll have 15 to 20 impressions a month in front of my past clients. And and here's the thing you got to remember is once they've liked it, they're not going to keep clicking on it. So even if they do click on it or like it and it costs me 50 cents, that's only a one-time fee. So now from the rest of eternity, I can keep marketing to them and they're never going to click on that again. So, but the ads just say, send us your referrals or we love your referral, you know, just different, different types of ads where we're just staying in front of them, but they all are referral based ads. 
Wow, that is uh, really interesting. I had never thought of it that way. So you basically set up a failure ad. And what I mean by that is you do not want people to click it because that costs you money. And yet Facebook will continue to put those ads out in front of them, hoping somebody will. And you're able to keep your costs super low because your real objective is impressions, but you're not picking that option. You're picking click-through. Very interesting. I hadn't heard that before. Yeah. Maybe that's that software thing. I don't know. Um, but that's just kind of how my brain worked is, you know, why would I, why would I want to pay Facebook to have people click on something when I don't actually want to drive them anywhere? I want them to call me. So all my ads have my phone number in them. Have you received business from that? Have you received people calling you on the ad or are you just using it as an institutional ad to keep your name in front of them? Yeah, that's all I'm using it as. You know, they're my past clients, so if they send somebody to me or call me, I don't ask them why. So I don't know if it was the Facebook ad that maybe triggered uh, something for them to do that. But yeah, our, our purpose is just to keep that in their mind, you know, to send us their referrals and stay in front of them that way. With the exception of the bold script that you're using and this Facebook ad that asks for referrals, how are you generating referrals? And what I mean by that is, are you asking for referrals directly or are they happening more organically just because you're in front of people? They're more organic. Our whole point is to just stay in front of people. I want to get the referral because we've stayed in contact with them and you know they see us and they hear from us and all of these things. We're trying to make a better effort of asking for that referral now because I think maybe we have been missing some opportunities by not asking for it more often, especially with you know, how, how many times we're in front of our clients, but um, it's been more of an organic process through, you know, the different things we've been doing. I want to switch gears again, talk about a different lead source for you, and that is the Dave Ramsey ELP. Could you tell us what is that and how is it working for you? So the Dave Ramsey ELP program, it stands for Endorsed Local Provider, and they are agents that are recommended by Dave Ramsey. So when people are listening to his radio show or attending one of his national events, you know, or maybe seeing him on uh, online somewhere, he will direct them to the ELP program for help with their real estate needs. So when they register through the program, we will get assigned that lead and they're, and they're typically assigned to three different ELP realtors. So it's a fiercely competitive program it's a, a pretty, uh, what's the best way to say it? Basically, you know, the Dave Ramsey program has high requirements to not only qualify to be in it, but to stay in it. So they track your conversion rates and, you know, and they want to make sure that if they're sending you leads, you're performing. How long have you been part of that program? Just over four years. I got into it, you know, uh, shortly after I got here into Colorado. Last year, that accounted for about 26% of your business, about a quarter of your business. So it's working pretty well. Now, do you have to have a, a radio ad on Dave Ramsey's show in order to be an ELP? No, in fact, you're not, you're not even allowed to do that. It all comes through, through him. So when he does his radio program, he's advertising in the ELP program. And so they'll go to the, the website and then they'll register as either a buyer or a seller in a certain zip code. And if you're an ELP in that zip code, then that lead will show up for you. So why is Dave Ramsey doing this? Is he being compensated? And if so, how? He is. 
you know, I don't know that we're allowed to share that compensation, but yeah, you know, he is receiving some referral fees back for that. Are you paying a monthly fee to be part of the program or is it a referral fee that's paid to the program when you close on the client? Yeah, we don't pay a monthly fee. We pay a, a referral fee when we close a transaction. So there's no cost up front for the program. There is now for new agents that are coming into it because I believe you're required to go through their coaching program or mentoring program for a certain amount of time until you've you know, basically uh, started hitting the rates that they want on their conversion side. That sounds like it's worked out well for you. You've been doing it for four years. What could you tell anybody who is listening, an agent listening, who was thinking about becoming an ELP? I guess the number one thing is, first of all, I would just get involved with the Dave Ramsey principles and programs. You know, he he teaches a number of different seminars around the country throughout the year. They've got Financial Peace University, which most major cities would have that at some venue or church. Um, You know, he's pretty heavily involved in the you know, the Christian and church world. So that piece of it would be probably in a lot of the, the bigger churches in town. You know, obviously he's got his radio show. He's got a ton of books. So I was actually reading Dave Ramsey stuff and my wife and I were kind of just following his principles before I ever even got into the program. I had no idea that the ELP program even existed before I got into it, but we were still following those principles of debt-free living and, you know, using cash and not having credit cards and carrying debt and getting rid of, you know, getting rid of all those debts and all that kind of stuff. You're also generating some of your business from farming. You mentioned earlier that you have a fall festival. Describe your farm for us. First of all, how big is the farm? How many properties? My main farm is about 2,200 homes. It's called Willow Creek. It's actually the neighborhood that I live in. So I assume that's how you chose it because you live there. It is. Yeah. I definitely did not choose it using, you know, normal farming strategies of, you know, finding turnover rates of 10 to 15 plus percent and, you know, low agent domination. In fact, I probably broke every rule on that because there was already, I think, three or four dominant agents in my farm before I moved here. And the turnover rate's pretty low. It's, it's, you know, usually less than 5%, which is still a couple hundred homes a year. But, you know, we lived there and I farmed where I lived in Phoenix. And I thought I could duplicate that when I got here to Denver and found out it was a whole different world on farming. But I had already committed myself at that point and I, and I wasn't going to stop. So it took, me a, it took me four years till this really started becoming a, a, a bigger piece of our business. It it just, it really didn't start showing up until this year. You know, it's been profitable every year, but this is the first year where it's, it's actually now becoming a, a a bigger uh, piece of our business. Describe your marketing plan into your farm. So I have a monthly mailer that goes out every month, you know, and this has kind of transitioned over the years. I started doing flyers and I would, and I would just do black and white flyers, double-sided, and I would just use these flyer delivery companies and have them put on the door. And I actually um, started a group with the local businesses because one of the corners on our subdivision is a, a retail where there was a grocery store and a number of other little retail places. And so we started having monthly meetings and I asked them if they wanted to advertise with me and I would sell them ad space on the back of my flyers to offset that cost. 
So that's how I started it was doing these flyers every month in the neighborhood. And the first year that I moved here, I actually bought, I think it was like 15,000 postcards. Um, I bought the entire year's worth of postcards and every month we would send them out using EDDM. So I was able to save a ton of money on it the first year doing that because I knew it was going to take me a while before I started making any money in there. But as it's grown, we've slowly just started producing higher quality things. You know, now we don't do the flyers. Now we do eight and a half by 11 full-size, double-colored, glossy postcards because uh, I want them jumbo. I want them huge. So that way when people go to their mailbox, it's not, you know, this tiny little just sold postcard that most agents throw out there. It's this huge card. There's no way they can't see it. So I know I've got three seconds from the mailbox to the garbage and that three seconds, there's no way that they're not going to notice that postcard in their mailbox. So, cause most of the time it's the biggest thing they got. So we started using those this year and, you know, and, and, and we do a lot of open houses now and the fall festival. And so there's, there's a lot of things that we've done that kind of grow our, our farm over the past year or a couple of years. How have you positioned yourself in the farm? Do you have a, a marketing message? How do you position yourself as the expert? A couple of things. You know, like I said, at first I didn't have any validity in there because I didn't, you know, I just moved into the neighborhood and I hadn't sold anything. And obviously I didn't want everybody to know that. So I just kind of used my stats that I had coming from Phoenix. You know, I had a 99.3 average sales price, list of sales price ratio, you know, my days on market was always less than 30. So I just kind of started talking about some of those things, which, you know, now as I've learned over our, my career of farming that nobody cares about that. They care about themselves. So now what we've done is we've shifted that message. Now it's, now it's more about the neighborhood. Here's every house that sold this month. I, I've got a little blurb in there where it's on the side of the postcard that, you know, I'll, I'll actually talk about what's going on in the neighborhood we'll actually put the the stats and the charts in there. So now it's actually something that the people want because, you know, they want to know what's going on with the market. They want to know what their neighbor's house sold for. In our neighborhood, you know, models, the model of the home is really important. So, you know, we just make sure we put all that in the postcard. And then obviously I've got a call to action in there, which is to call me. And we've got a home value website where people can get free home values. And we've got some links in there to that stuff. You mentioned that you put on this fall festival. Tell us about it. This year was actually our fifth year doing it. It started off at one of our clubhouses where I, the, these vendors that were advertising with me on the back of the postcard, you know, we talked about just doing something to get the community together. And we just kind of just did this small little event at the clubhouse where everybody set up booths and, you know, we rented a couple of, you know, bouncies and a face painter or something. And it was just this kind of little thing where a couple hundred people showed up. And then every year it, it just has kind of grown. So, you know, this year was our fifth year. We finally moved it from the clubhouse right in the middle of our neighborhood is a huge city park that's got baseball diamonds, football fields, soccer fields, and so we rented out one of the uh, the fields, and we just kind of blew it out of the water. There's a there's a band that actually all the members live in the neighborhood that every year they play it for free with us. My title rep owns a couple of restaurants, so he always sponsors the event and provides free hamburgers and hot dogs for everybody. All the local businesses still chip in, so we're we've got a lot of sponsors that help. Um, we get a ton of these big blow ups. And it's free, you know. Uh, this year we had over a thousand people at the event, and it was, 
it was enormous and it was a huge success. So, you know, it takes us about two to three months to plan it, pull it together, find sponsors, collect sponsor funds, you know, just get everything scheduled. We do a hay ride. We've got big Clydesdale horses that come out and do a hay ride and they bring out these huge longhorn and Burma bulls that, you know, even the full grownups can take pictures on. And it's just a lot of fun. You know, the list just kind of goes on and on. It's just grown to that size. My goal is I would love to do like a, a city fall festival where it's like the entire city of Centennial. So every year we just try to grow it a little bit more. How much do you invest dollar-wise into putting on this festival? The whole thing budget-wise runs about, this year the, the total budget was about eight grand, and I was out of pocket about three. So, you know, we had about $5,000 that came from sponsors, you know, different businesses that were chipping in for uh, different pieces of the event. So, you know, we, we pick out all the things that we want to do at the event, and then we find a sponsor for each one of those. The sponsors, they're covering most of the cost. You've got about 3000 into it and then a lot of time. What are the results? What kind of business have you been able to track directly from the event? Every year, I have walked away with at least one to two listings from that event. So we do a raffle every year. So a lot of these businesses, and I'll go, I'll go around to all the retailers, all the different restaurants in the area, and I'll let them know about the fall festival. And a lot of them will chip in gift certificates and giveaways and all kinds of stuff. So we, um, we give them a reason to, for them to want to give us their information, and we collect that in our database, and we market to that. So it's always led to at least one or two deals a year, which more than pays for the event. Um, and obviously that leads into a lot more business because obviously when we're taking listings in the neighborhood, that leads to more listings and, you know, on and on. Let's talk about your team. Who's on the team? So right now my team is four people. So, you know, we've bounced between probably four to six people over the past couple of years. Right now we're at four again. So it's me and I'm doing all the sales right now. So I'm going on all the listing appointments and I'm doing all the buyer consultations. My wife actually works with me. So she's on the back end. She does a lot of the marketing and uh, also is the one that's doing most of this past client stuff, setting it up, organizing it, getting all that put together. And then I have my executive assistant, Shannon. So she's handling all the transaction pieces of it. You know, basically, once I have something go under contract, I hand it to Shannon and, I, and I'm done with it. So she handles most of that from contract to close, except for negotiating inspections or things like that. And then um, our latest ISA, Inside Sales gal, her name is Maria, and she just started with me about a month ago. And she's actually one of my past clients through the Dave Ramsey program. <laughs> we brought her on. This role for her is uh, we're planning that we're going to be growing under other ISAs underneath her. So uh, we brought her on actually as our uh, director of lead generation. Is everybody full-time? Yes. Why have you chosen to grow by building up an administrative staff as opposed to bringing in a whole bunch of salespeople? Maybe some of it's intentional, some of it's not. You know, if I'm being honest on that, I, I would like to have more on the sales staff. It, it's It's been a little bit of a chicken or egg thing with me on the buy side, just, you know, because it seems like every time we get into a position where we want to hire a buyer's agent, you know, you kind of have that point where it's like, all right, well, how many buyers am I going to need to feed a buyer's agent? 
you know, when we hired our buyer's agent on this last summer, her first month in the business, she had 10 buyers under contract with So, which for her ended up being too much. So it's, it's been kind of trying to find that equilibrium where it makes sense to have a buyer's agent. Um, the other piece of it is it just kind of grew that way naturally. To me, I'd rather create a mess and then clean it up. So that is why I brought in an inside salesperson before I brought on a buyer's agent or a listing specialist because I want the leads first. I can always handle more leads. I'd rather turn business away than not have enough. So for me, I want to build that piece of my business first to where it's bursting at the seams so badly that I need the leverage of having salespeople on on the team. I don't feel valid unless I have enough business to support people that I'm bringing in because I want to, I want them to be successful and I want them to have huge careers. You know, I, I feel like I need to have the business in place first to do that. Well, I agree with you. I think it's a smart move. You know, we've talked to, to Dave Jinks who put together the millionaire real estate book. He was one of the co-authors and he thinks that a lot of agents make a mistake by bringing in salespeople first and instead, you should bring in two to three admins first and build up your personal sales skills and income before you bring in that sales staff. And that appears to be what you're doing. So I was, I was thinking maybe you were going to tell me you were following that model, but it sounds like you've just kind of found it out on your own. Well, I am. I mean, some, that's where we do have some of that intentional. You know, I, I do try to follow the Red Book as close as I can. We've just kind of shifted things. I you know, I think I made those mistakes on trying to hire buyer's agents and, and bring those on before I was ready in Phoenix. And I learned from those a little bit. And in Denver, you know, I didn't need to sell 200 transactions overnight. I, you know, for us, we've been trying to grow at 30% every year and we have. I always wanted to keep a high margin business of profitability. And as soon as you start hiring salespeople, if you don't have the volume, all your income just went out the door and you weren't, I, I don't know that you were there yet. So, you know, I know a lot of agents do it and they have success and it allows them to grow faster, but you know, I've got that C in me. So um, I tend to think about things a little bit more cautiously, I guess. And the other thing I looked at too, is this, the showing agent model worked fine for me. We've done things where we've paid out. We've had literally full-time showing agents where we pay them a percentage of the deal. And then I've got the the latest iteration where I don't have them on my team. I'm just paying hourly to other licensed agents. Some are experienced, some aren't that are in my office. So that model has been working well for us. It keeps my overhead really low, keeps our margins higher. It allows me to bring on additional staff like an ISA. So I'd rather be paying an ISA who's skilled and I think has a higher potential for future growth, a higher salary than just putting a, a, somebody in a seat that's going to bang on the phone all day. Because to me, that position is the most important position on the team. That, that lead generation piece, that person that can be making calls, following up with leads, generating new business. I would rather pay them a hundred grand a year versus maybe a, a buyer's agent because that's the core of your business is lead generation. So why are, why are we trying to pay those people pennies when they should be making a ton of money. I mean, they're making you a lot of money. So, Are you profitable? Yeah, we're extremely profitable. I have always in my business had a profit margin of over 50%, including this year. Now, I know that that's going to go down as we start bringing on salespeople. And I've had salespeople on before, but uh, I, I've 
I've never dipped below that 50% because we've always kept our our marketing costs pretty low. I'm just very smart about where we put our money and I and I hold everything accountable and I track it. You mentioned that on your team is your wife. How long have you all been working together? Well, she's been on and off with me almost since the start, but she didn't really come on to my team as necessarily like a full-time person until about two years ago. And this year, she actually got her license. So she's never been licensed. She doesn't do sales, but we got her license this year, mainly for profit share so that we can build our profit share pipeline underneath her. How have you been able to make that work? A lot of people try to work with their spouse and it doesn't work out. There's too much conflict. How have you all solved the issue of working with your spouse? Uh, Trial and error. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, like I said, on and off for the past 10 years. So, you know, the reason I think we, we work well now over the past couple of years is because we've actually defined her role. When she first came on and was working with me in the past, it was always just out of necessity. You know, I didn't have an admin or we were in transition of an admin or I needed some help on something. And so, you know, it kind of was just this, it it wasn't really organized. And so she just came in and helped and, you know, she'd show up and I'd be like, here, go do this. And she'd look at me like, I don't know what to do. Right. So taking recruit select and, train lead motivate and just reading a lot more. It's just kind of opened my eyes up into how maybe I haven't been greatest leader in the past with my wife or maybe even other people. And so I think just growing those skills and really recognizing how to organize that better, you know, we've defined her role now. She knows exactly what she's doing. We treat it as if she's anybody else on the team. You know, everybody has their roles, responsibilities, accountability, and, you know, obviously we're business owners together, but she's running one specific piece of the business. She's on the administrative side, so that's not my world that I'm trying to live in anymore, so I put her in charge of that. She's in charge of my admin, and I'm in charge of the ISA. So we've kind of split our business up now, and she runs the marketing and administrative side of the business, and I run the sales side of the business. Derek, what drives you? Fear and motivation. (laughs) Um, I'm always scared to go backwards. So that always kind of drives me to keep going forward. The other thing is, you know, I always said I wanted to be retired by the time I'm 50. I just turned 42 days ago. So I got 10 years before our, you know, I plan on being retired in the sense that I'm not going to be in my businesses anymore. So that's a huge driver for me. I I really want to make that happen. So I want to be youthful in my retirement. I don't want to have to wait until I'm 65 or 70. And, you know, a lot of those prime years have passed for me. So I, uh, I'm really motivated to get there and, and do that. And I want to be able to provide that generational wealth for my family where, you know, we, I, I can, I can pay my kids college and I can pay their weddings. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of things in the future that I'm chasing. How are you putting together that wealth? Are you still investing in real estate? I am. We were out for four or five years, you know, when the market kind of took a turn, you know, I was tracking that and I kind of saw it 
trending that way. And so we sold off all of our multifamily and, and rental properties down in Phoenix at the time. And now this year, uh, we've really been looking at it a lot more seriously. We just picked up another triplex earlier this year. We've been looking at different properties. And our, our plan is we want to pick up one to two properties every year for the next 10 years. And um, we're working on getting all those paid off. One of my other goals in life was to have my house paid off by the time I was 40. And we could do that today. If we wanted to, we could pay our house off today. But instead, we're, we're investing it back into the business and we're investing it into other properties. So, you know, rather than taking that money, paying off our house this year, we took that money and bought another investment property. We took that money, added another staff member on ISA. And so, you know, now we're trying to grow these other pieces that are going to create us a lot more revenue than, you know, just necessarily paying off the house. But we, you know, we're over 50% paid off on our current properties. That's our only debt is our mortgage. So we don't want to carry any debt. We want to have high cash reserves. We want to be picking up investment properties and just building that that portfolio out that way. Derek, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? Pick up the phone and uh, call every single person that they know. And the second piece that I would tell them is to get rid of every piece of debt they have as fast as they possibly can. Do you think that top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a ton of value in these because you don't know what you don't know. And whether you're new or seasoned, uh, there's people that have been there before you. And sometimes your way is not the best way. And, you know, there's a lot of ways to do this business. And I don't think there's right or wrong in any of them. And if you can figure out those best practices or maybe make tweaks that work for you, it's, it's just going to help with your success. Well, Derek, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? Yeah, I guess if I had to leave in any parting thoughts, it would, it would be to just keep learning and just keep failing forward. You know, I, I've made a lot of mistakes. I'm going to keep making a lot of mistakes. And sometimes you can get paralyzed in that. And so I think the biggest thing is to recognize when you're at those points and, and just keep moving forward. Don't let those failures set you back. You know, treat them as learning opportunities. And every single time you have one of those, it, it's a moment where if you take what you've learned there and apply it in the future, it's just going to make you a much better person and better business owner. Well, Derek, you give sage advice when you remind us to fail forward. You showed us how to adapt to changing markets when you moved into the REO market in down times and then back into traditional markets during good times. You told us how you ran your team remotely across state lines. You made the hard decision to close your team down when it no longer felt right. You demonstrated how to build a new team in a new market when you did not know anyone. You've built two successful teams in two different markets with two different approaches. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who specializes in working with attorneys and selling divorce houses. Find out who she is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. 
I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at freeleadtime.com. That's freeleadtime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.